Hey, this is Dinez. And this is Franny. And you're listening to Roll Call, a Versus special series on the past, future, and present of Black poetry and poetics. Yes, this is episode five in this special six-part series. So if you haven't had a chance to go um, to listen to the other episodes of Roll Call that have already aired, highly recommend, 10 out of 10, um, to go back and listen to those. But yeah, Dinez, what are we listening to today? Today, we are listening to a conversation looking for a queer Black canon of African poets. This is hosted by Mano Mahale and Kopano Moroga uh, from South Africa, two brilliant uh, genderqueer writers who are just doing the thing out there. I've been so happy through this process of getting introduced to their work. And just shout out to all the international folks um, and writers outside of the States that submitted for verses. There were so many, so, so, so many good applications and it just felt so powerful to swim in such a rich diaspora of Black writers um, doing their thing in their context all over the place and to feel so connected. And I'm so excited for, you know, all of our listeners here to get a peep into maybe a corner of the poetry world that they didn't know that much about, but that maybe they've already been heavily influenced by without even knowing it. Uh, I'm so excited for, for all of us to be able to swim in this conversation. This is all the apostles are Black, all the saints are queer, all of them are brave toward a queer canon. Produced by Maya McDonald. So excited for y'all to dive into this conversation. Let's go. Such bright bulbs, colors watered down From lifetime to lifetime to lifeline Still here, we're still here, we're still Darkness so defined, memories they collide A cauldron of chemicals to descend Oh, you got to be down, down, down From stark, stoic simulation Freedom found in fragmentation Omnipresent deaths and deaths and deaths And endless openings of heartache you apart from you Omnipresent here, still here. Wish you were here. Ocean, stay clear. Ocean, stay clear. Wish you were here. You know what we should do? You know what we should do? We what? should introduce each other. That's what we should oh, do. Okay. Okay, cool. I'll read your bio. You read my bad as hot. And so okay. I'm gonna read you and then you're gonna read me. Love your right. child. Yes. Okay, hot. So Kopano Maroja, they them, is a performance artist, a writer, a cultural worker, and co-founding director of the arts organization Anybody Zine. Mm. They are currently living in Brussels, Belgium, and working as a curator and a guest dramaturge. Get a bitch. At Kunt. Kun, I'm going to try it. Don't laugh at me. Kunstencentrum Furait in Belgium. 
their debut anthology. Um, I would say it's not an anthology. It's like their debut collection. Their debut collection of poetry, Jesus Thesis, and other critical fabulations was released in 2020 through Ushlanga Press siblings in that sense they very much believe in the power of love as a weapon of mass construction mm. get it get it i love i love the fact that first of all that afrikaans accent that that what is it that weird at all secondary language yeah. afrikaans she came yeah. for you she came yeah. and she was like ha. it said ha. <laughs> And I love so that you even you read so And the way that you read me even for anthology, you're like, that's not an anthology, my baby. Actually, <laughs> you better read me for film. <laughs> I have the honor. I am and I have the honor of introducing Maneo Rifilwe Muale. Their pronouns are they, them, and they are a South African editor, feminist writer, and poet. Their work has appeared in various local and international publications, including Jalada, Proofrock, The Beautiful Project, Mail and Guardian, Spectrum.za, and others. They've served as contributing editor for the New York Times and ID, among others. Bra, 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 bra. They have been long-listed, they have been long-listed twice for the Soul Blikey European Union Poetry Anthology Award and their debut collection of poetry, not an anthology, a collection. <laughs> Everything is a Deadly Foul was published with Ushanga Press in September 2019. Yes, they are my big brother. In 2020, mm -hmm. they were shortlisted for the Ingrid Juncker Poetry Prize, the youngest finalist of that year. Thank you. Delish, oh. delish, oh. delish. Oh, delish. Oh, Yami, Oja. Yes, Munat, 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 okay. Take us further, baby. Mm, okay, so the title of this episode, I suppose, um, is all our apostles are black, all our saints are queer, and all of them are brave. Towards an ever incomplete queer canon. We are such fucking nerds. I love us. I love the format. Time. The format of this episode will take uh, the form of myself and Maneo co-hosting and discussing black queer poetry as it relates to our South African localities. We'll be unpacking our ideas around things that we have inherited as Black and queer writers, from identity politics to the language of demarcation through negation from illicit occupation with white settlers to writing poems about said white settlers. Um, we're interested in the themes of inheritance, legacy, ancestry. Who do we look to as our forebears in the realm of Black queer poetics? Who do we invoke as ancestors and revoke as the unwell dead? Who takes us to church? And who do we need to take us to school? So in, the, um, in this episode and talking to Kolega Putuma and the incredible musician and writer Nakane, we begin to kind of chart a cartography of our poetic lineages across disciplines, across forms, across colonial inheritances of the nation states. Because we say no cops, no prisons, no fucking linear time. So we're trying to push back and interrogate Black American hegemony. Trying being the operative word. Mm, trying so hard um, of a black cultural representation. We're trying to figure out if that's even a thing, like worth interrogating. If, 
are we the ones to do it? We're trying to use the Sonic Archive as a site of Black South African quotidian queerness. And we're trying to be very cute and very cunty while doing so. <laughs> I would say that we succeed. I would, I agree, I agree. Right. So put simply, we're sluts for history and sluts for discourse and just basically sluts. And moreover, we're interested and invested <laughs> in the project of Black transnational solidarity. And we're interested in the ways in which we can contribute to forging through the poetic tradition of the varying Black locales of the world. But perhaps more specifically and, and personally, we're both writers whose work is in deep conversation with the Black poetic tradition of the United States of America, and perhaps even problematically so. So we want to work our way through and try to articulate some of the things that are coming up for us in a moment in history where we as a global community have never been closer and yet ironically keep missing each other. Stay tuned. I think and I feel and my body wants to say that to be black and queer and femme and to ask what or whose lineage do you form a part of is the same as when Umaneo asked in a poem that they wrote moons and moons and moons ago, what does it feel like to be a hurricane, to be movement, to be wave, to be woman-made word? And I think that I am a descendant of a lineage of fabulating love and life and imaginative creativity from the most impossible of possibilities. It's the lineage of my grandmother's hands making Sunday lunch before leaving for church on Sunday. It's the lineage of wake work, right? The lineage of Toni Morrison's clearing and the lineage of... Um, first of all, can I just say that I am a fan of both of your collections, um, Jesus Thesis and Other Critical Fabulations had me gagged for my whole fucking life. Uh, everything is a deathly flower. Listening to you read it yesterday, actually, Manewo reminded me of some pieces and some poems that I want to go back to. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that's a side note. Um, I am Kolega Putuma. Um, my full uh, government name actually is Manyano Kolega Nangamso Putuma. Yes, my parents were extra AF. Um, I am a theater practitioner. I am a poet. I am the founder and CEO of a multidisciplinary company called Manyano Media. I am the author of two books, 
uh, my first book, Collective Amnesia, was published in 2017. And my second gorgeous little baby, hello, bye-bye, Coco, come in, uh, is titled after a song uh, by Brenda Fassi. Uh, and it was published in April of this year. So she is about three months old. Um, so yeah, that's me. And yeah, I'm she, I'm her, um, I'm God, I am spirit, I'm it all, actually. So that's me. Um, I want to say that it's such a pleasure and such a privilege to be given an exclusive front row seat into your process. And I really think that it's fitting that both of us are speaking to you um, and not in like a, a patronizing sense or anything like that, but and not even trying to be sycophantic in any sort of way, but you opened the door for us. You were the first one through the Utlanga door with collective amnesia. Um, so I guess this first question is both a way of thanking you for busting the door open in that sense, but also a secret peek into this, um, into what it took, I suppose. So the question, um, our first question is, what is the moment that first entranced you into writing, that first, um, that understanding, I suppose? Ooh. Ooh, I literally just had like, 12 answers dart into my head. Um, I, I think it was several moments. Um, I would say, I think the first would be that I grew up in a household with uh, preachers. So my grandfather was a preacher and my, my dad is a preacher. And I think being raised uh, by people who revered and uh, fiddled with the word in the ways that preachers often do, because, I mean, that's their vocation. They have to fiddle with words. They have to make words have meaning. They have to sell the thing that they are preaching. Um, maybe sell in the context of Christianity is not the best word to use, but sometimes it is a sell. We know how that goes. But um, I would say maybe just... Um, yeah, growing up in an environment where words were at the center of everything, you know, like you are brought up with the word, you are reared with the word. Um, and so I think maybe subconsciously, I, <laughs> it's so funny, my mom was telling me a story the other day about how when I was younger, I used to do this thing when we would come back from church, I would literally imitate like my dad's sermon from like start to finish. And like with his mannerisms and everything. And I was like, I don't remember that, but apparently I used to do that. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting that, you know, as a kid, I would latch onto words. Um, but I think it wasn't until I went to high school and it was in the life orientation class. Um, and you know, like nothing much goes on in that class. You're literally just learning about nothing <laughs> like basically the basics of sex and like don't do drugs you know just very weird things around AIDS and HIV like life orientation was weird but anyway we had to we were given this task to go and write a poem or rap or a stanza or whatever on safe sex and um, abstinence and I and I went and I wrote this rap that I came and I performed for the class. And I think that that was the first time I felt 
like I don't know like I felt heard I felt seen uh, I felt affirmed um you know just standing up there sharing <clears throat> something that I'd written with people and having people go oh my god like you're dope as fuck you know <clears throat> um and so I think there was something in in how I felt really affirmed in writing that really drew me towards some sort of a purpose I guess for me like rap <laughs> It's so funny like when I was when I got into rap I I came out the gate as a rapper and I considered myself a rapper and I had like a name I was like Miss Philosophy but the way that I spelled philosophy was F I L L so like full <laughs> filled with philosophy which I thought was pretty smart um and i used to like if when people would ask me like what who's your like favorite rapper you know like i'd give the same response as everybody else i'd be like tupac um and i didn't know a single fucking song of tupac's i just said tupac cuz everyone is saying tupac <laughs> yeah and i just for me like rap at the time i think like the connections with how i was writing and and what i was writing at the time for me was so closely connected to like what was going on in my life like i when i <clears throat> was writing raps and and rapping there was just uh so much turmoil and so much chaos in my life at the time and i found that once that chaos had started to um come to somewhat of a stillness i then moved into poetry which is in a different rhythm um which is something that i kind of reflected on and saw the the connections later you know that the rap was sort of connected to the energy that was in my life at the time and the poetry and the move to poetry could only happen because there was a much more quiet environment happening you know mm very delicious very tasty and i mean on that point of the performance modalities that are inspirational for us like springboards into the written and the spoken word i was really interested because like i have this thing as well like my introduction into the word was really through um the performative and i i didn't have uh the performativity of a uh, churching right and i didn't realize this until a lot later in life like after i wrote jesus thesis and i started getting questions like what was this moment for you i had to really think back and actually the first time i engaged or like accessed verse was in church was through churching through the pastor through the priest and it was the first time that i experienced uh, watching the performativity of preachers and people who were receiving communion and going out for testimonies and that pentameter that holy pentameter or that kind of biblical pentameter that was the first kind of earworming to go oh, okay that's what it sounds like to access divinity through the word um and i was wondering for you because you're also theater trained and very specifically theater trained in the tradition of the university of cape town at the hidden campus uh which produces a lot of really prolific south african playwrights and writers and there's a very specific lineage that you're coming from and that you're descended from and i'm also thinking of the performance that you did for the center for the less good idea africa my africa which was iconic but you can really hear the pentameter in those performances uh the africa my africa this like very prolific very biblical very um i don't know what the word is but the hyper performativity of preaching and i wanted to ask for you 
what or how have the different performance lineages that you've interacted with at the University of Cape Town, the church, then arriving at the Center for the Let's Good Idea in Johannesburg and presenting at a few different places, how has this infected or affected the way that you write and the kinds of writing that you do? Mm. Oh, I love these questions. Um, like I, I don't necessarily hear words or see words first when I, when I write or when I put together a story, I'll always see, um, I'll always see images or I'll see um, the thing that a lot of people don't know is that I think in choreography quite a lot. So I will, I see, <laughs> I see bodies moving or I see things moving and then the text follows. And so my approach or how I come to writing or to words is through the rhythm of the visual or through the rhythm of um, movement. Um, and so it's also how I approach my uh, theater work. Uh, when I make, um, I always, you know, my, my practice is so reliant on getting into a space with you know, performers or a bunch of actors and other creators and sort of thinking about how it is that we can make the story from a picture or from what it is that we're seeing first um, and really trying to get into the body first. Like the body is such a huge thing for me. Like before you even open your mouth or, or speak text, it's like what is in your body first. And so <clears throat> that's kind of like my springboard when I when I um, make my way into text or writing is that I sort of um, take my own body as an archive and I almost metaphorically lay it down and I go okay what's sitting in my body you know like what what is it that I'm trying to access um, before I write what I need to write um, and that's just largely influenced by my training at theater school you are asked to get into your body first. Um, you are asked to always engage with your body, to be aware of the body and how it's connected to breath, how it's connected to your voice, um, and, and then how it then informs every other decision that you make about the story that you are wanting to tell. You know, like I am obsessed with, okay, maybe obsessed is not the word, but I am, yeah, fuck, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with um, how it is that you are going to receive the text in terms of, of how your eyes land on it. So I like I feel like in both my collections, I've experimented so much with how the text rhythmically sits on the page and how it moves. And that's just because of how my mind um, works in the theater space as well and how it is that I like to guide the audience to see and feel, but also how I, like, I just want to fucking hold your hand and go, like, here on this page, this is the kind of dance I want you to do, you know, I don't just want you to fucking read, I want you to waltz, I want you to tango, I want you to pulse, I want you to gyrate, I want you to, like, you know, and so for me, it's always about movement, and I, and I'm always trying to figure out how to work that movement of, of, um, the way that we engage with text into how it's written. I don't even know if that makes sense, but yeah, that's, that's what my training has done to this mm -hmm. brain. 
Yeah, no, it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And as you were talking about, I, I love this quote that I've, I've written down, body first. And it's so apparent in your writing, right? There's such an affectual body, a bodiliness and immediacy that I think is something that we get trained in, that performance art traditions and theater traditions really um, train us in. This is how we arrive at the character. How does it feel? How does it feel? How do you take yourself into the feeling? Uh, I'm going to hand over to Maneo now. Take us away, baby. All right. Ooh, okay. Okay. Now we're going. Now we're getting, you know, it's getting hot. It's percolating. Okay. Okay. Let's go. Um, while you two were talking about body first, which is so profound and so beautiful, and I'm going to kind of let that settle into my body and the breath and how the theater has also impacted and broadened your relationship to the text. I was thinking about this concept, which is increasingly becoming very important to me of black tongue um, and what black tongue can animate and how present this idea of black tongue is in your work. It's so present in your work. And also like this idea of the body and not just the body as this like floaty academic concept, but as like a deeply embodied somatic experience. You ask us to think about the body as a poet, um, as, as the speaker. So um, kind of expanding on this idea of bodliness. I know a lot of your um, of your later work, especially this book, this new book that I was so um, honored to edit too, Hello Bye Bye Goku Come In, um, is asking not just about the body as this sort of, again, this floating idea, but the bloody, the body of a black woman moving through space and not just any kind of space, through white spaces, white male spaces, European spaces. So I guess my question, this next question is, what is the impact of celebrity and visibility um, and moving through space as a black woman in the world? What I love so much about uh, one of the poems, one of your poems, Europe asks if it can touch my hair, I'm not trying to explain it to Kopano, but I think you can give voice to this much better, is how when Solange says, don't touch my hair, and when you write, Europe asks if it can touch my hair, backspace, Europe touches my hair, etc. It's a very different conversation. So, and very different locations of Black femininity or Black femininities. So do you want to speak a little bit more about that? Um. <laughs> Um, sorry, if I do this a lot, it's because I'm trying to close tabs in my mind. I think two things. I think that there's something really weird about, and, and something that a lot of people don't talk about often. Um, and you don't have to be um, super famous or super visible to, um, I don't know, to, to have some sort of an experience in this department. But I think that there's something weird about being a black woman and a black queer woman uh, who grows up in a very particular kind of environment where um, little black girls who look like me are not really, you know, the flavor of the month, you know, we're not really uh looked at in that way we gawked at we are whistled at we are desired we are um what's this we are objectified right so we are looked at as as um things to be taken from but we're not looked at as things to be admired or at least let me speak for myself where i grew up i wasn't 
growing up in the kind of environment where I was walking down the street or, you know, walking into a classroom and people look at you and go, oh my goodness, you are so brilliant or what you're saying is, is of value so much so that I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen to you, you know, that when you open your mouth, there's something so, um, there's such a gift in, in, in inside your body, in your voice, so much so that I'm willing to pay for it, that I'm willing to leave my house, take a shower, put on some fucking makeup, get to the show where you are speaking um, and show up for that. So, and there's something weird about like growing up uh, and sort of being like on the sideline and or kind of being like an afterthought or being the kid at the back um, and only being looked at like when you sexualized and moving into a space where um, you are constantly looked at uh, but now the the gaze or the being looked at has shifted, right? It's now moved into a space where it's either people think you you have something to offer that is of value to them in some way, uh, or um, there's something that people want to uh, engage with uh, in your work. Uh, this is why they're looking at you. Um, and so for me, like... <laughs> when Collective Amnesia happened, and I was very fortunate to travel with it, uh, navigate different parts of the world as a Black queer uh, woman and a poet in those different spaces. In the beginning, there was, I was just excited. I was excited to be outside of the country. I was excited to be making money in a different currency. <laughs> like I was just out here, you know, like I was like, yes, let me earn in euros. Let me earn my dollars. Okay. Let me travel. Let someone else pay for all of this shit. Okay. <laughs> let me just live my best life. And also because like I didn't come into publishing or poetry with any kind of aspirations around like, you know, visibility or selling books or you know, becoming a bestseller or whatever. I was like, I like to do this thing. And also I need this thing to pay my rent. So we, you know, we out here. But then there was a shift and the shift is where um, I guess it required uh, a whole lot more from me um, in terms of how I showed up in the world. Um, and how I performed, not only the poems, but how I performed myself and how I performed my boundaries uh, and how I performed my voice um, and how much of myself I gave uh, to people and, and how I did that performance. And so, yeah, which is what a lot of Hello Baba is about, is, is, is about negotiating with multiple gazes uh, as a black queer somebody negotiating with multiple spaces negotiating with Europe over and over and over and over I mean I think like after the what second year of tour like of being in Europe and performing in Europe something about it just stopped being cute you know like it was cute in the beginning because you're in Germany for the first time but then when you're in Germany for the sixth time and you're dealing with uh, not so microaggressions, um, it, it starts to uh, affect your psyche 
in ways that you, or in ways that I only realized once the pandemic happened, actually, I was like, oof, a lot happened there. A lot happened back there. I then had to really grapple with just all of it. Like, what did it mean to be a performer who performed mostly outside of South Africa and who doesn't really perform here at home? You know, like, what does it mean to be... um, yeah, to be to be looked at, to be taken from, to be um, to be affirmed, to be validated, to be celebrated, to be celebrated but not really seen. You know, to be to be looked at and 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 not really seen. Um, yeah, negotiating with all of that and and just even, I mean, the poem that you are talking about, um, this is a very long response, I'm going to cut it now, but even the poem that you're talking about, just realizing just this, at some point, um, I stopped wearing my hair a certain way when I would travel, because I just did not want to negotiate with, um, what's this thing, border control, not border control, but the thing that you have to pass through. I just don't want to negotiate with all of that, you know, like European officials, handling you in a certain way because of how you look um you know and and I started to give a lot of airtime in my mind more recently or as time had developed into like how what I look like when I would perform so like what I wear uh just because of what I wanted people to see before I even opened my mouth um but these are all things that I kind of realized once I stopped (laughs) once the pandemic happened and I was able to just reflect on everything that had happened you know belief system such bright bold colors watered down from lifetime to lifetime to lifeline still here we're still here we're still so in Hello, Bye-bye, you kind of ask these elders and think about yourself um, moving through the world, negotiating space, negotiating Europe, negotiating empire, whiteness, masculinity, all of these things. But then you in this book, um, which is just so brilliant, you call on very specific elders. You call on Brenda Farsi, um, you, t- you call on Umir Makeba, um, and so many in this beautiful citational string of pearls I suppose um, you do this so beautiful and then in the book you ask not just that you cite these elders you have conversations with them and you kind of pull out uh, these salient passages from all kinds of, of um, archives um, on page 54 specifically you are speaking um, and speaking through and speaking with Uprenda Fasi and you pull out this uh, this quotation from a YouTube video I, th- I think and um, I'm just going to read a little bit of it now. Brenda says people always look at me but I'm never looked into. People don't look inside me. They don't look into Brenda and try and understand the person in her. They always look at me like the camera. The camera, you always look at it. And now you were looking into it and it does things. It shows you something, right, good. I don't know if you get it. I love that. I love that um, this, this last little thing that she ends up there. I don't know if you get it. 
And I love how she talks about the camera and the idea of the gaze. Specifically, it's not just any gaze, right? <laughs> but I think that the gaze that Brenda, Brenda is talking about here is so embodied. It's mechanical. It's older than her. It's an apartheid gaze. It's a gaze under a party um, that is so linked to white oppression, subjugation. But white people were so deeply obsessed with her, like as this like fetish object, as this doll, the symbol that she ceased being a person, that she was this like symbol. Um, and it's like this harbinger, this like good time girl that um, that she just really wanted to sing political songs at one point. And, you know, we're thinking about songs like Black President that are so important. But then on the other side, there's this conversation with the United States, right? This conversation with, uh, this temporal conversation with disco and bubblegum and pop, etc. And she resisted a lot of this characterization that empire and a, a very specific white masculine gaze were pushing onto her as like the township Madonna or like, and never as herself. And I, what I love about the move that you do in this book is that you recenter her, that we get to hear her in her own voice. And then that end little piece that I don't know if you get it, because then we kind of get a little revelation of who she's talking to. Yeah. I think for me, like I, especially with writing Hello Bye Bye, like I kept on asking myself, like, how did they do it? Like, how did... How did Brenda do it? How did she negotiate with the media? You know, like that constant, like, um, just constantly being misnamed, constantly being um, misunderstood, constantly being written about um, and lied about um, and, and also pitted against someone else constantly. And I found myself kind of going like, how, how did they all you know, thinking about Lebo Matosa as well, thinking about Winnie Mandela as well. Uh, think like just how did they just have this fuck you, fuck you, fuck you attitude, you know, towards everyone and everything. Um, in a world that, you know, always asked of them to be polite, to be courteous, to be uh, behaved, um, and to show up in a way that would make other people less uncomfortable, you know? I think like in, in, in writing, I was always just like looking at interviews, just trying to like find the thing that would let me know, like the, the little secret ingredient, you know, that would let me know how they did it. Like just to carry the sense of, I don't want to say self because to say, you know, they carried the sense of self about them. It sounds a bit weird, but how they were able to, to hold on to the parts of themselves that made them them um, in, in, in a, at a time and in a society that was always just, um, yeah, throwing shit at them and putting them in these very awkward and uncomfortable and fucked up situations. Um, I think the best way to try and articulate what I'm saying is through, I think it's in the poem, Weight of Remembering is both a synagogue and a graveyard, page 46. Um, they unravel you between commas, between the mundane, between their birth names and aliases, between what they were called and what they called themselves, between their interruptions and escapes, between who they became when they were looked at and which parts of themselves they forgave and laid down when they looked at themselves. I think like for me, like when I think about 
all of the women that I danced with in writing this book, you know, I was always just thinking about like, who were they when they were looked at versus who they became when they looked at themselves, when they were writing about and singing about themselves and just gyrating for themselves and dancing for themselves versus eyes, other people looking, you know. Kind of going back to that line that Brenda says, like, I don't know if you get it, like, and there's something instructive in there about Black inscrutability and being okay with not being understood and not being legible in all spaces. Um, Because you yourself, as a Black person, you understand yourself, right? It's so cool. And also, I don't know if you get it, and even if you don't, shop. Shop, babes. Like <laughs> that's on you, actually. That's really like your legibility of me is that's on you. I'm not getting involved in all of that, you know. Mm, mm. And as you say, I, as you say that, I'm thinking of like these two excerpts from the book uh, that I want to read from, uh, and I think that'll that'll help me get into the question. Uh, but on page 17 of Hello, Bye Gok, or Come In, if we can take out our Bibles and turn to page 17. Um, <laughs> so you say, um, the poem wants to know, was Brenda seen, backspace, happy? Quote, I know how to sing. I know how to make people happy. And I'm very much of people's property, end quote. 20 minutes, 39 seconds, open quote. But most of all, I'm grateful for the media for making me famous. As much as I know, as much as I know, they're going to break me. And I'd like to tell you that I'm yours. So do anything you want with me. It's okay, end quote. 29 minutes, five seconds, Brenda Fassi. And then, and then en plus, as the French say, en plus, on page 24, you say, it has become ritual standing here, splitting insights for you to grab, to microscope, to pick and poke, to make sacrificial, to make Venus, to make Krotoa, to make Eunice Wayman, to make Megan the Stallion, to make Anarka, to make Bometa, to make Batis Wandara, to make Heed, to make Jadine, to make Winnie after the death of Stompy, to make Winnie after the death of Winnie, to make Sula, to make Pakola, to make Kwezi during and after the trial, to make Sorrow, to make Beloved, to make Token. It has become a cult, this obsession with the dead or dancing, you know what. And I'm really interested in terms of practice, this way in which you write through these sites of Black feminine objectification, Black feminine triumph, Black feminine resistance, Black feminine complicity, Black feminine complexity. Writing through that, what for you does that produce as a writer, but also as a person writing through these moments, these um, scenes of, sub- of subjection, as Sadia Hartman says, what does that for you as a person, for you as a writer, what does that produce? Oof. Yo, 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 yo. Like, listen, babes, you took us from the starting line to over the 100 meter mark with that question. Like, we landed, babes, like, from fucking way back. Like, you fetched that question. Sharp. Uh, <laughs> yo, 
Anyway, there's something about um, collating or my first uh, impulse or answer to this question is to say this is something about sitting with um, archives of materials in a concentrated um, way um, and collating all of that, that makes you, <laughs> there was something about uh, sifting through interviews and sifting through um, articles and reading about um, all these women's experiences and also just listening to interviews. But in the process of, of reading and writing, I saw just how um, duplicated our experiences are. Um, and even though they may uh, feel different or have different aesthetics at the core, um, they are similar. And that a lot of that has to do with the way that society is structured uh, and where women are placed in those structures um, in society and how that then, you know, at the end of the day, you can be, you know, a black woman in 1952 and a black woman in 1968 and in 2001 and 2019, um, until certain things have been dismantled. There are certain things throughout history that we're always gonna experience as women, as black women, um, because certain things have not been, you know, dismantled or there's no absence of those things. Um, and so I found like in dancing with Miriam in dancing with Brenda, uh, women who contributed so fucking deeply to the movement um, of the ANC who like none of us even know about because, you know, <clears throat> there was a real project there to write them out of history. Um, in dancing with all of those women, I started to see how, yeah, we are, we are negotiating with similar things still um, as artists, as Black women, as Black queer women. Um, same script, different cast, same script, different set, possibly different time, but the script, the lines there, you're reading your part and you think the character says colleague and you're like, Aibo, doesn't Miriam have the same lines? And it's like, yes, baby, same, same, but different, you know? And so <clears throat> I think for me, yeah, sitting with all of the materials, I sort of started to connect the dots and I saw just how, um, a clearer understanding of my position in the world and no clearer understanding at all, actually. Koleka, I have to say, I have to say, as Maneo has also said, the privilege of being able to break bread. It's such an honor. It's truly such an honor. Thank you for taking the time. It's been such a joy. Thank you, Maneo, for being my partner in this journey. You're delicious. I love you. I love you both. Oh, I love you. Thank you, Kofano, for being so, so damn fly and so damn clever and someone I eternally fall in love with with every conversation. And thank you, Kailaga, for being someone that I can stay in love with.
for so long. I mean, so long. I mean, yes. <laughs> um, I'm so excited for what this love will do, what it will accomplish, all of the books that will come out of it, all of the conversations. Um, do you know? Do you, do you see? Like, oh, oh. <laughs> but I'm in love with both of you. I'm in love with both of you. And that's all I have to say. I get to call you friends. I get to call you siblings. I get to call you lovers. I get to call you, you know, um, comrades in slutship. Thank you for having me on this conversation. I really appreciate it.